Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is going to be a fun conversation. Joining us is Justin Mandon. Justin is the superintendent at Pasatiempo Golf Club in Santa Cruz, California. And Justin has a cool job. He receives an opportunity to work on an Alistair McKenzie design golf course every day. And the work of Justin and his team and the history of Pasatiempo Golf Club were the focus of the Enduring Greatness story sponsored by Toro that appeared in the July issue of Golf Course Industry magazine. If you missed the story, it can also be found on our website at golfcourseindustry.com. And we're also releasing a e-newsletter in September spotlighting the story and this podcast. We know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Justin. He talks about Pasatiempo's past and also what him and his team are doing to protect its present and future. Well, Justin, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of Pasatiempo Golf Club. You get to work there every day. How would you describe course in the land in your own words? It's very unique. I don't think that I've played another golf course that has features like Pasatiempo. Basically not having any water here, what really kind of stands out at Pasatiempo to me is is the Barrancas. You weave your way through this hillside in Santa Cruz and you just come across these dramatic deep barrancas that, you know, Mackenzie so thoughtfully designed the golf course around that just create a tremendous amount of strategy. Some of them are just raw, out-of-bounds areas that you can't play of, and he took other parts of the golf course with the barrancas and, and he grasped them and made of an integral part of, of the hole. So to me, that's something that just totally stands out that's unique, unlike any other golf course I've seen. So there's no water on the golf course, but you're close to the Pacific Ocean, right? Yeah, we're probably about two miles from the water. I mean, uh, there's several holes out here that you have a view of the Monterey Bay. But yeah, we're, we're pretty close to the ocean here at Pasatiempo. So you grew up in Northern California. When was the, the first time you visited Pasatiempo, and what were your impressions? So the first time I came to Pasatiempo, I was probably 19 or 20 years old. I was a greenskeeper at La Rinconada Country Club, just 20 minutes from here. And the superintendent uh, called me in and asked me if I wanted to play Pasatiempo. And, you know, growing up in this area my whole life and playing a lot of golf, it was a, a golf course you always wanted to play. But, you know, as a 15-, 16-year-old kid, it's not, not something you're going to go pay a couple hundred bucks to play. And we're always looking for that $20 golf course to play when we're kids. But as soon as I got the opportunity to come over here and, and play around, I, I was just completely blown away. You know, you get on the greens at first, and you're looking at these putts, and I can't tell you how many times that first round where you're lining up a putt, and, you know, the superintendent that I was playing with, um, John Pena, he was telling me, uh, you're going to be putting over there. And, you know, you're turning your body 90 degrees to the hole and making a putt that's, you know, lagging 10 feet to the right or left and, and hopefully trickling down to to a pinnable area. I had just never played a golf course with contours and with greens like that before. It, it, it was just something that was totally foreign to me and something that I just walked away from the golf course. Just one of those things where you just you can't wait to come back and play it again because it, it's just the uniqueness of it. So it was something that stuck in my mind for years afterwards after playing and, and something that I was always trying to get back to with other golf courses and and in playing other McKenzie golf courses I was able to see it again but it was the first time that I'd ever been really um, you know was able to experience something like that. Justin how did your career path lead to Pasatiempo? Well um, you know I started off 
basically washing golf carts and clubs uh, at the Rinconada Country Club, which was the local country club um, in the town I grew up in, and and not knowing it was really going to be a career for me. Um, And when a new superintendent came on, he he grabbed me out of the cart barn and asked me to cut cups and rake bunkers for him, and I did for a summer, and I just got hooked. I knew that there was something that was totally different about this profession that you know, I didn't have any idea about that even existed. I was going to the local community college here in Santa Cruz studying horticulture, so I was kind of already, you know, into some plant-based science career, you know, thinking I was going to be a landscape architect or something. Um, but once I did that first summer, um, I just knew that I wanted to stick with it and ended up doing the Rutgers two-year program. And then um, from from Larinconata, moved on to Sharon Heights Golf and Country Club as an assistant superintendent for three years which was a great experience. And when the superintendent retired there, um, an assistant position opened up at the Olympic Club. And so I was able to go up to the Olympic Club, and I spent seven years there and, and worked for former GSSA president Pat Finland and was able to do a ton of construction and went through the U.S. Amateur in 2007 and then you know, was lucky, lucky enough to be the golf course superintendent on the lake course for the 2012 U.S. Open. And, you know, after all that time, then three or four months after the Open, Paso Tampo position became available. To me, it was like a coming home if I was able to get the position. And i just gotten married, and my wife was born and raised in Santa Cruz, so all of our family was down here. All of our friends were down here. We were down here all the time hanging out. Um, and so to be able to come back to Paso Tampo, Kind of, it, it, to me, it was it was sort of a full circle of my career um, to be able to come back and be here, and I, I couldn't be more excited. I just listened to a podcast with Webb Simpson, who won the 2012 U.S. Open at the Olympic Club. It was a pretty wild tournament, especially at at the end. What what do you remember about that event, and what did that mean for your career, getting a chance to to play a role in it? It was obviously, you know, one of the highlights of my career to be able to go through that whole experience. I mean, we did construction for years before the U.S. Open. You know, everyone thinks about that one week of the U.S. Open, but when you go through the experience as a as a golf course superintendent, it's it's the years leading up to the, to that one week um, that that really kind of helped shape your career. And that was such a fun tournament. We had. We had great weather. The golf course was in in excellent shape. Um, I just remember how, you know, difficult coming down the stretch was, um, you know, with Furyk and Webb and and some of those other players contending in it. Um, And to be able to watch that and have a huge part in that, it was was just extremely exciting and, and something that I'll never forget. So you were born and raised in Northern California, then spent two years for school on the other coast of the country? What was that? transition like for you going from one coast to the other for those two years (laughs) oh for a born and raised california boy it was uh it was definitely a a shock for me uh culturally geography wise um you know i'd never been in a winter on the east coast before um and lived lived through it um so it, it was challenging um uprooting and moving to the east coast for that amount of time but i think it's good that we kind of get out of our comfort zone once in a while um i met a ton of great people whether it was um instructors or staff at Rutgers, and then of course the you know the turf professionals that you meet in your class and you you make these lifelong friendships with that i still talk to today so it was a great experience and i've 
recommended and and been you know able to send quite a few um, other individuals through that program, and I think they've all kind of come away with the same sense of that you know it's it's a great program and a great experience to be out there for a couple of years, and even if it's not the the place that you think you're going to end up. Um, it's definitely something that I think helps helps your career. There's certainly a lot of golf history and golf course architecture history on the East Coast near the Rutgers campus, and there's certainly a lot of it near uh, where you live in Northern California. Three World Golf Hall of Famers have significant Pasatampa ties, Marion Hollins, Alistair McKenzie, and Julie Inkster. How important is the club's history, and what duty do you feel to preserve it? I mean, I think it drives what we do out here. To be honest with you, I mean, to preserve, I'm just a caretaker here. I'm just here for a certain amount of time, and our goal is to preserve the history of Pasatiempo and to continue it and to make sure that people know what it is. Um, so, you know, everything we do out here from a maintenance standpoint is about preserving the design. And then to have individuals like Marion Hollins, who was such an integral part of, you know, Basically, she is Pasatiempo. She's Pasatiempo as much as Alistair McKenzie is. Um, she had the vision. Um, she bought the property. She developed it. She brought McKenzie here. Um, and then to have Julie Inkster grow up here um, with her amazing career and her family still here. Her parents still live out on the 14th hole. Um, I see her dad walking every single morning out here. Um, that that is what Pasatiempo is. You take those three individuals. Um, it 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 represents Pasatiempo, and it will continue to represent Pasatiempo. Alistair McKenzie is a big name everywhere in golf. He's especially a big name in Northern California. How much did you know about his work and his career when you arrived at Pasatiempo, and how much have you learned about him in the last seven years? I knew quite a bit about Alistair McKenzie um, before I came to Pasatiempo. I was fortunate enough to be able to play uh, several McKenzie-designed uh, golf courses before I came to Pasatampo. Um, so, you know, Cypress Point, Meadow Club, uh, Green Hills, Claremont, um, a lot of Alistair McKenzie-designed golf courses in this area, and I, and I always appreciated, um, you know, his design work. But after coming to Pasatampo and, and being a superintendent of an Alistair, McKen- Alistair McKenzie-designed golf course, um, you start to see the layers of it even more so. And, and working with Jim Rubina, um, you know, he kind of folds back those layers for you that you may not have understood or been able to see before. Um, so I just, the more time that I'm here, the more I learn about Alistair McKenzie and his design principles, the more I talk to Jim Rubina, you just have more and more appreciation. And it, it just seems like it's it's never-ending history and never-ending um things have happened at Pasatiempo that you could just continue to learn and learn and learn forever. Do you know the superintendents of the other Alistair McKenzie design courses in your part of the country? Is there kind of a bond and relationship um, amongst that group? Yeah, I know them all quite well. And, uh, you know, Jeff Marco down at Cypress Point and, and Josh Clevenger at Claremont um, and Sean Tolley up at Meadow Club and then Rogers down at Valley Club in Santa Barbara. I mean, we all know each other. Um, and I think that when we do get together and talk that, you know, we do have this this bond that McKenzie brings us together. And, in fact, Sean and I have talked, you know, over the years about having a, a Alistair McKenzie, you know, superintendent gathering 
um, because we are a part of the Alistair McKenzie Society. There's 16 golf courses that are part of the Alistair McKenzie Society group that get together and, and have a tournament every year, and and we've been pushing to have some type of get-together. So there's definitely a bond when we see each other, and, and we definitely have an endless amount of um, subjects to talk about with our golf courses. Before we get back to our conversation with Justin, let's talk about perhaps the biggest piece of equipment you'll bring out on the golf course, tractors. Yep, everybody's seen those big, clunky tractors working on the golf course with their clutch and complicated lever-pulling sequences and a turf maintenance application. They're like stepping onto the first tee without knowing which swing you have that day. Well, Toro's Outcross 960 can do everything those clunky tractors can, but with less stress on the operator and on the turf. With automotive controls and programmable attachment parameters, even rookies on the crew can be trusted with aerating, top dressing, mowing grass, loading sand, and removing snow from around the clubhouse in the winter. Toro Outcross 960 is like having your best golf shot saved, ready for use each and every round. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. When you get to visit one of those other golf courses that were designed by Alistair McKenzie in your part of the country. Is it similar to Pasatiempo or is it completely different? Do you, do you just notice some things that maybe were common across those courses or are they all completely different? No, it, it, it's interesting. I played Cyprus in February and I hadn't been out down there for about 10 years. I I'd played it before I was here at Pasatiempo and, and it's interesting because you'll walk up to different green complexes at these McKenzie courses and you'll say, my gosh, this, this is the 12th green at Pasatiempo, just slightly modified. Uh, you can see where he carried some of these design aspects or some of these greens from course to course. And, um, you know, I've, I've been out to the Masters and, and walking around Augusta and looking at some of their green complexes. And, you know, people don't know until you've been there if you just watched on TV. You know, the contours at Augusta are dramatic. I mean, they're like Pasatiempo. Um, and so it's interesting now, after being at a McKenzie course um, for the last seven years, that you start to really see how he carried on the same principles from course to course. And it's it's a lot of fun to see um, when you're at these other McKenzie golf courses. Your club historian and one of your predecessors did a great job of collecting the club's history. Do you ever get time to look through the archives? And what's the most fascinating thing you've seen when you've had an opportunity to sift through them? I do. Um, I have been in the archives quite a bit and gone through a lot of material on my own um, because, unfortunately, not you know we can only display so much of it, and there's just a, an enormous amount of material in the archive. And I can tell you some of the most interesting things I found in the archive were about Marion Hollins. Um, her life and career is is so interesting, um, which is why we're so excited that she's getting inducted to the World Golf Hall of Fame this year. But some of the more interesting things are, are some of the, the pictures and notebooks about her life and her early life and the things that she was able to accomplish. And, and one of the most interesting pictures is I, I was going through this notebook of pictures from her early childhood, and, and there was a picture of what looked to me like a castle. And I thought, my gosh, this, is, this must have been her childhood home on Long Island. Her parents had a 600-acre estate on Long Island. They were extremely wealthy. And I look at the bottom of the picture, and it said horse stable. And this, you know, three-story stone-looking castle that I thought was someone's mansion in Long Island was actually Marion Holland's 
family's horse stable. And it just completely blew my mind that, you know, some of the the things that she grew up with and where she came from, um, it's kind of hard to comprehend sometimes. Dang, I'm trying to envision this right now. That that, that sounds Im- impressive. I don't think I've ever seen a horse stable like that. Uh, yeah. With regards to history, Justin, we have a lot of younger listeners, a lot of people that, that aspire to be head superintendents. How important would you say understanding a facility's history is is to the job? Oh, it's extremely important. I, I would say, you know, any assistant um, superintendent that has worked for me that's, you know, trying to make that next step to becoming a golf course superintendent um, I tell them know the history of the club that you're you're looking at, or the golf course that you're looking at, because it's extremely important to the membership. It's extremely important for you as a superintendent to know um, who the architect was, the work that they've done, what their design principles are. Um, it's only going to help you be able to manage that property um, at a higher level, and it's just it's fun to me. It, it's such a fun part of the job to be able to study that history and to know it. Um, I think it's integral part of, of being a golf course superintendent. Okay, now on to some agronomics. Uh, Alistair McKenzie designed terrific features and bold features, but what is it like maintaining some of these contours and barrancas on a daily basis? It, it's not the easiest thing in the world, I can tell you. Uh, you know, with the amount of contours that we have and the way that, you know, game of golf has changed over the last 90 years, these contours were probably fine in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s with where green speeds were, but um, with the green speeds that we have now, there's several greens out here that we may have three or four total pin positions. We have greens that have an overall average of 6 or 7% slope. So it makes it extremely challenging from a playability standpoint. Um, being able to move the pins around, and then also just the extreme contours of the greens. You know, you're always looking for consistency when it comes to firmness and, and moisture, um, and, it, and it definitely creates challenges with the extreme contours out here. On the surface of those greens, you have POA annua. What are some of the strategies you found to be successful for managing POA in the type of environment you're in? You know, we have old push-up greens and, uh, you know, original, you know, 90, 90 years old, so... You know, just like with any green, you, you have to be able to to move air and water through the green. So, you know, we do a lot of deep tining out here, um, trying to make sure that we're creating the healthiest medium that we can for the POA annual greens out here. And, and we have a lot of traffic. Um, you know, Paso Tampos does between forty and 50,000 rounds a year. Um, we're not a small, you know, private club that does ten or 15,000 rounds. And, and we're a 12-month season here, so... Um, you have to relieve the compaction, and and you have to keep the poa annua greens as healthy as possible. Yeah, and within that 12-month season, you have different levels of moisture falling from the sky. Uh, explain to our listeners what what it what it's like during the rainy season, and what it's like during the dry season, and how have you been able to manage the, the water at Pass at Tampa over your last seven years? You know, here on the West Coast in California, you know, we're classic Mediterranean climate, so. From approximately May 1st until usually right around the mid to late October time, we receive virtually no rain, um, zero. Uh, and so that, that, that creates challenges. You know, managing irrigation throughout the summer um, is pretty much kind of how, how we make it out here as golf course superintendents. There's, there's no thunderstorms in the middle of July or August 
you know, every single drop of water that hits the golf course is a direct result of, of the decisions that you make as a golf course superintendent. So the playability golf course, from a moisture standpoint, from a firmness standpoint, is all up to the superintendent and the staff here at Pasatiempo. And then on the flip side of that, in the wintertime, we get a tremendous amount of rain in a very short period of time. So making sure that water's moving through the profile and doing as many things as you can um, to keep the greens as firm as you can. Um, It's not unusual for us to get uh, 40-plus inches of rain um, over a 120-day span in the wintertime. And in fact, several years ago, we had 70 inches of rain over a four-month span. So it definitely creates um, some unique challenges here at Pasta Tampo. Fortunately, there are a lot of uh, tools and technology available to help you manage that water. What's some technology you've integrated into your operation over the last seven years that's really helped? You know, having a smart irrigation system is extremely helpful. Toro does a great job with their software applications and, and being able to have um, things in your hand that you can make adjustments when you're out in the field has has dramatically changed and saved us a ton of time when managing turf um, here on the West Coast. And some of the other technologies that we've utilized here that have been extremely helpful is um, we call it our, our, our digital scoreboard or, or basically our digital labor management where um, all of our labor is tracked every single hour of every single day of every employee Um, is in a software program that we're able to track. And that's really helped us to be um, a lot more efficient with our time and and to be able to show the membership when they ask certain questions about, um, you know, wanting to, say, put more time into the bunkers or we wanted to put more time into this, is that I I can pull that data and show them, like, this is how much time and how much money we're currently spending on, say, bunkers or greens or fairways. And if we're going to increase the amount of, time spending in these areas, this is a dollar amount, and this is exactly how much it's going to cost. So those tools have been extremely helpful. From an agronomic standpoint, you know, we use a lot of growing degree day modeling now um, where we're tracking, you know, the the temperature, and we're making applications based on that, whether it's be growth regulators um, or pre-emergence for certain types of weeds. And so that's definitely changed a lot of our agronomic um, programs. When did you realize that data would become a big part of the job? Uh, I would say, you know, probably before the open. I would say 2009, 2010, it started to be to where there was a ton of data that was becoming more and more available. And the hardest part is when you get flooded with all this data is sorting through what's actually usable. And I think superintendents still are struggling with that because we're given moisture meters, we're giving, um, you know, firmness devices. We have all of this smart technology in our irrigation systems that's showing us um, ET and humidity and all these other factors. But having all that data doesn't matter if you can't actually use it in a practical way because you can get overloaded on data so quickly that it becomes too cumbersome. So that's something that us as superintendents are constantly trying to navigate because there's tons of new technology that continually comes out, whether it be flying drones every day over your golf course and and looking at infrared um, or, you know, moisture meter sensors in every single green or fairways. Um, all that technology is great, but it has to be practical and usable. 
yeah, here I am talking about data and technology and some futuristic stuff, but really the club has made its mission over the last uh, two and a half decades to restore the work of Alistair McKenzie. W- what has that experience been like? Uh, how much is the golf course evolving? And describe what it's been like working with uh, architect Jim Urbina, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it, you know, we're always trying to be what Pasatiempo was opening day 1929. And, and any time we do something at Pasatiempo or make a, dis- a decision or we're working with Jim Urbina, every time a question comes up about something the club's stance and Jim Rubina's opinion immediately is, well, what did McKenzie do? And that drives everything that happens here. And every single time Jim Rubina comes out here, I make sure that I set aside as much time as I possibly can to just drive around the golf course with Jim. Because if there's one person that knows about McKenzie and his design principles, it's Jim Rubina. And every time I drive around the golf course with Jim Urbina, I learn about something new. He shows me a bunker, or he he sits me on a tee or an approach shot, and he shows me the layering, and he shows me the visual that McKenzie creates that is is deceptive. That it, it's it doesn't really you don't think about it until someone points it out to you, and even if you've looked at it a hundred times, and you look at it and go, my gosh, like. I didn't even see that it, it because he he's designed it in a way where he doesn't want you to really see it. He wants it to look like something different than what it actually is. So having the opportunity to work with Jim Rubin at the last seven years has been a, a huge educational experience for me. Pasatiempo turns 100 in 2029. How do you envision the course playing when it reaches that milestone? Closer to 1929 than 2029. How's that? That's that's what I would say is is I think that we are continuing down the road um, of making Pasatiempo what it was intended to be. I think it's very close. Um, the club did a great job working with um, Tom Doak and Urbina during the entire restoration period. Um, there's more work to do out here, uh, but I think that we're closer than ever to having Pasatiempo be what it was um, on opening day in 1929. Well, hopefully I get a chance to make it there. Uh, Before 2029, Justin, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this podcast, and thanks for your help with the article, and, and best of luck here with the rest of your 2020 season. Thank you, Guy. It was a pleasure.